Today's reading is Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. As Jesus walked, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest, first through uh, fifth graders, you can now go to the lobby and find your teachers. The rest of you may have a seat. So I'm really excited this morning to be able to introduce you guys to one of our really good friends. Her name's Emma Tautolo. Emma, will you come up while I introduce you? <clears throat> so Emma is originally from Southern California, Inland Empire. We met her a number of years ago in Phoenix. Um, we attended the same church. Emma was part of the ministry residency program, and I got to oversee her, her part of her development it, through that residency program. Now, here's the irony. Emma is way better at everything than I am. That, so this is like... That's not even true, bro. This is... No, no, no. This is 100% true. This is like if I'm overseeing, like, Michael Jordan's basketball development. Like, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Oh. I learned way more from Emma than she ever learned from me, I guarantee that. Um, but more than that, Emma spent a lot of time in our home, um, sharing meals, sharing laughs, sharing cries. There are people out there who know a lot about Jesus, and then there are people who live their life fully devoted to Jesus. Emma is both of those. <laughs> like, it's a rare gift to, for me to have somebody who like follows Jesus so closely, encourages us, my family, to follow Jesus so closely, and like is incredibly intelligent, creative in how she lives it out. So I've been so excited for this Sunday. I'm so thankful that you're here. Can I pray for you before you preach? Yes, yes. Father, I thank you for my sister. I thank you for her life. I thank you for the ways that um, she reflects who you are uh, to so many people. Lord, I thank you for the gift that it is to be able to hear from her. Would you speak through her? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you use this time to continue to form us into uh, your missional people, continue to remind us of our identity as people who partner with you on mission to show others what you are like? And, and Lord, would you produce fruit through this? Would you make an impact in the city of Long Beach through Emma's delivery of your words? We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Grace Long Beach, thank you for welcoming me. Um, I, like Will said, I grew up in the Inland Empire, a city called Moreno Valley. Anybody know where it's at? If you're from here, you know, you know, way out in the desert, hot, lots of smog, you know, we really live it up out there. And, um, but my, what I love about being in Long Beach is both of my parents are from here. So my dad went to Milliken High School, or, okay, look at the Rams in the building. And uh, at my, as my mom used to call it, Millicant, because my mom went to Lakewood, also known by my dad as Flakewood. So I grew up listening to arguments about Millicant and Flakewood High School. And I was like, what are you guys even talking about? Like, get it together, people. Like, we don't live in Long Beach no more, you know? Um, but so all my family is from Long Beach. Uh, we come out here for every, I'm Samoan, so every family reunion, every funeral, every wedding. I have every, any Samoan church in this city, I have probably been to a wedding in it. So I'm just letting y'all know, I'm well-versed in the areas y'all probably don't ever hang out in, but it's fine. Um, 
So, but I moved to Phoenix a decade ago because I've worked for a campus sports ministry for the last 15 years. And they was like, we're going to send you to Arizona State. And I was like, huh, what? So I moved to the desert and have been doing campus ministry there and then work for a network of churches out there now. And so that's where I know the Vukovic is from, some of my best friends that y'all stole from us, but it's fine. I'm going to let it go. And this is my peace offering to y'all to preach here today because you stole my friends. So this is a labor of love right here. But in, uh, in 2020, so in the height of the pandemic, y'all know we're locked down. We're up in our rooms. I'm on 74 Zooms a day, right? Y'all know about this time. Everyone's like, don't talk about it. It's traumatizing. Okay, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit because one of the things I picked up during the height of the pandemic was that I started watching Korean dramas. Does anybody else up in here watch Korean dramas? Okay, I started watching Korean dramas and we're all living into the stay at home order and so one of our Korean friends was like, yo, let's all get on a Zoom and watch this show together and we're spread across the country. It's like friends from Atlanta, I'm in Phoenix, they're here in Northern California and we all get on this Zoom together every week to watch this show called Crash Landing on You. Oh, yes. Where am I crash landing on you? Yes. You, if you haven't seen it, you don't understand the bond we have because this show, you guys, I don't know how else to say it other than I got hooked like crack. I, I, I started watching it, you guys, and Crash Landing on You, it was endearing, it was dramatic and a little corny, but I liked the little bit of corn, you know, a little bit. And it was this epic, long-suffering love story where the characters made you laugh and made you roll your eyes. But for me, they literally made me weep. And uh, we would be on the Zoom and I would be like, <laughs> and my friends would just be like, she has lost her mind. Actually, I'm about to expose myself, but the final episode, there is this, y'all, you guys gotta go watch it sometime. There's this final scene in the final episode of, the, of Crash Landing on You, and we're watching it, and they already, they warned me, prepare yourself, you cry at all of it, this is the worst of all 16 of the episodes. So I'm watching it, and I'm literally, <gasps> it's, so I'm in my room watching it, my roommates run in, open up my door. What happened? Because they're like, who died? And I'm like, oh, it's just the show. And they're like, are you for real? You're up in here crying like somebody died. So my roommates were mad because they're like, you need to stop. But this is, so I'm like, this, this long story short, Crash Landing on You became the first of 10 Korean dramas I watched over the next two years. I know. I told y'all, hooked like crack. And um, I was discussing with our group of friends, because we've been like Korean drama evangelists now, like we be getting people on them. We're like, yeah, this, and you gotta watch this, and this one, and this one. And we were discussing like, what is wrong with us? <laughs> like, why do we love these shows so much? What is it about Korean dramas that we are so drawn to, like, that it like pulled us in and we're like hooked? Like, what is it? So we're trying to, we're trying to pay attention and discuss with it is, what this is that hooks us in. And so there was three things that I realized this is what it is. This is what I'm hooked on. The first one I thought about is, y'all, Korean dramas are clean. You can let your kids watch them. They might not know what's going on, but they're not going to hear no cuss words and no bad sex scenes, right? Okay, they are clean. They're clean. They're, um, the, all the episodes are like an hour and a half, so they aren't long. But in the first, in Crash Landing, I knew the first one I watched, this epic, drawn out, long-suffering love story. They kissed maybe five times in the entire 16 episodes, okay? These shows are clean, and that's not what we get with American shows a lot, right? So I was like, the cleanness is refreshing right here. The second thing I thought of that we were talking about is because they're just so long, right, 16 episodes, an hour and a half each just about, they just do character development really well because they got a lot of time to do it, right? You're spending a lot of time watching these. And we would get into these discussions 
about like which characters are really the villains and not. And it's weird because you watch them all the times and like your friend will be like, no, I'm team this person. And they'll be like, no, I'm team this person. And be like, that's the bad guy, that's the villain. No, she's the villain, right? Because there's so much different character developing going on. You're connecting to the stories of these characters and you kind of get lost in like, who is the real villain? Well, they're a villain, but this happened to them. So this is why, and we just like, the, we love it. And it's like, we, we can't stop watching. But the last thing that we talked about, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is it right here. This is what makes us love these Korean dramas. It's because Korean dramas, in them, if you watch them, you know this, there is always a lot of food scenes. <laughs> they are always eating in Korean dramas. And I'm not talking about little, like, American shows, right? It's like a dainty, let me eat this salad, little bites. No, 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 no. The, the Korean dramas, the characters, they stay slurping loud, all kinds of noodles, spicy tofu stews, kimchi, bibimbap, Korean corn dogs. I was like, what's a Korean corn dog? I want to try one. Where do you find those? Right there, the, um, what are those, like the rice? Um, I think the name's like taibaki or something. I don't know. If there's Korean people in here, you really could help me out. But they have all kinds of conversations with mouths full of food on camera. <laughs> you know the American actresses is like, I can't be looking sloppy like that. I got to eat more cute than that. Not in Korean dramas. Right? And I don't think American television shows showcase the act of eating your way through life's peaks and valleys the way that Korean dramas do. Right, and my friends and I, we are just drawn to it. We're drawn to it, and every time we watch when we leave, like, we're hungry, pause it so we could go get some Chick-fil-A, you know? Or let's go make some ramen, or let's go get some fried chicken and beer, because that's what they be eating too. So we're always hungry, but we're so drawn to this picture they give us of living life through food at a table. And I wonder if in Jesus's life and ministry through the Gospels, if it was made into a K-drama, 16 episodes, hour and a half each, right? I wonder if we might be drawn to this very same thing in Jesus's life, right? Jesus eating his way through the gospels. And I think it would draw us, draw us in the way that the Korean dramas draw me in, right? Because the most subversive, scandalous thing that Jesus did regularly was share meals around the table with people, right? It is what he was criticized for the most. People, right, the question people constantly asked him is, yo, why are you eating with them? <laughs> or was asked about him, right? They'd be like, hey, psst, why does your teacher eat with them, right? This was constantly asked about Jesus through his life and his ministry. Who Jesus ate with, who he ate with, had people mad, and confused all the time, nonstop, right? Because culturally, we know table fellowship, it was no small, insignificant thing. It was this intimate act to share a meal with someone, right? Food, everything from how it was prepared to how one should cleanse themselves to receive the food to whom you ate it with was central to a life with God in the Jewish community in that time. All these parts were central to a life with God. N.T. Wright, I love this when I read it, because he, he said a quote where he said, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. Right, the very presence of Jesus and what he was trying to impart to his followers the essence of it, the center of it, was food at a table. That's why I'm like, yo, the Korean dramas got something. They got something about the kingdom of God that we don't got, okay? Right? So, right, because the center of the spiritual lives of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the center was the table, right? The table of the Passover and the table of communion. Right, and then at the end of all days, when the consummation of God's eternal kingdom comes, right, 
what does he give us a picture of in Revelation? A wedding banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb. A table throughout all of the biblical story, right? And this table, God's table, was like this. I heard a pastor uh, preach about it, and I think, I think this pastor's in New York, I don't know, but he, he preached about uh, the table was like a portal to the kingdom of God. I was like, dang, the table is kind of a big deal, but I don't look at my table that way, right? I'm just like, yeah, I got to go make this meal. I got to, my roommates, I, I'm on duty tonight for the roommates, but I don't think I always see the table as a portal to the kingdom of God. The table was a missional movement in the life and the ministry of Jesus, right? He set tables before us. His tables are of welcome and of hospitality, right? It's a table for the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, the left out, and the most hated people were guests at the table of God, right? And that sounds like one heck of a dinner to go hang out with the most hated person in the city, right? It's like, I want to be a fly on the wall watching that table, but you better believe that table was powerful. That table was powerful, and it was the power of the table that led people to encounter the radical grace and love of Jesus. And it was the power of the table that led sinners to repentance and to justice. And it was the power of the table that led broken people to healing and to restoration. Right? Jesus did not play when it came to this practice of table fellowship. He used it as the center of his missional strategy was table fellowship. The problem is, we don't build tables the way Jesus built tables. Y'all know this. We do not build tables the way Jesus built tables. We like to build tables of exclusion. I hate to admit it, but we do. We like to be invited to tables of prestige, where we can be a special part of a, ta of a table that gives us status. Right? These are the types of tables people in our world like to build. And if we're honest, we actually like to be invited in to be at those tables, right? Or we want tables of us where we can't be corrupted or influenced by them, right? We want tables of us. We want echo chambers. I want my tribe at my table. I want my political party at my table. I want my kind of people at my table. Right? These are the types of tables we like to build. Right? I was thinking in college, um, I played basketball at UCLA, and um, we, one of the things they do for college athletes is they have these things called training tables. And so really it's like a big old table of a bunch of healthy, balanced, cooked food, and athletes could go for lunch after practice or after class or after dinner or for dinner you know, after they get out of all their weightlifting and stuff, and there would be a table of tons of food prepared for us to eat, right? Because the, the food would have been prepared with our nutrition in mind, which would have been an input towards our athletic performance on the court or on the field, right? So it was a table only for college athletes. It was the epitome of a table of privilege that you only got if you were a athlete at the university, right? I'm thankful that I got it, but it's a table of privilege, right? It's an exclusive table only if you're an athlete, right? And I think of a lot of uh, ways that we make a lot of bad decisions that we wouldn't normally make because more than anything, we want a seat at the table. We'll make decisions that we were like, in a normal day, I wouldn't really say yes to that, but we will because we want to be invited to these tables of prestige, to these tables of inner circleness, and we want a seat at them, right? We want a seat at the table at work, so we'll overwork and neglect our families and turn our jobs into idolatry, right? We want to feel included and desired and loved, and so we'll engage in a trash, promiscuous relationship only to feel loved, even if just for a night, right? Or we'll neglect the tables God has given us, 
right? Because we want to try and earn our way into a table that's more sexy or it's a cooler table than what God's given. And then historically, oh boy, we know this. Historically in our country, we have seen and bared the weight of the fruit, right, of tables of exclusion during slavery, the Jim Crow era, right? We all have seen them in our history classes, the signs, pictures of the signs over bathrooms and restaurants and stores that would say whites only, coloreds only, right? Uh, no dogs, Mexicans, or Negroes on a sign hung above a restaurant. We've seen the pictures of this. Some of you in here probably actually lived through that era and saw them with your own eyes. I've only seen them in pictures. But we know the fruit of tables of exclusion. We've spent centuries excluding whole people groups from tables and trying to strip away the dignity and humanity of people groups through it. And then in the first century, right, in the first century, Jewish people, Jewish people wouldn't have wanted to share their tables either with Gentiles, right? Because they were repulsed by Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jewish people, right? Gentiles were unclean, they were dirty, they were socially at the very bottom. So sharing a meal, if you were Jewish with a Gentile, that was not a desirable practice. We have been phenomenal throughout time, throughout all of time. We've been phenomenal at creating tables of exclusion. But Jesus' tables, y'all, they were different. Jesus' tables were different. The table seems, I told someone this this morning, the table seems um, so small. It seems almost insignificant. But we see the power of the table through Jesus, right? Jesus built tables of inclusion, not exclusion. And so I just want to look at Jesus' life, like what do we encounter at Jesus' tables, right? So the first is that we encounter radical grace and love at the table. And can you imagine the scene from Matthew 9, the calling of Matthew? I met a little boy named Mateo this morning, and I was like, Mateo, we're going to talk about you in church, hey. But he's in kids' church, so I'm like, bye, Mateo. Um, you're not here to hear. But, right, the calling of Matthew, right? Can you imagine the scene? Matthew is a tax collector, so he's a sellout. He's employed by Rome to collect taxes from his own people. And off the top of it, Matthew's got to have a side hustle. So he collects a little bit extra so he can steal money from his own people so he can, you know, be a little bit swagged out and have a little extra money, right? Matthew is a hated dude. His people hate him for it, right? So this hated, the most hated dude around, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. <laughs> It's like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Right? And it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And then when the Pharisees saw this, they asked, right, this question again that was constantly asked about him, why does your teacher eat with the sinners and the tax collectors? What is going on? Why does he do this, right? And on hearing this, what Jesus say? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus lets the Pharisees know, listen, y'all don't get it. You guys are not listening. You don't get it. You still think my table is about the most righteous and the most holy. You still think my table is about morality and our moral fortitude and the idolatrous culture. But it's not the healthy who need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. That's why you keep asking me this question. I'm not building the kind of table that you guys want to build. Right, Jesus' table was a table for sinners, for the broken, for people who were far from him. 
to get caught up in this picture and reality of his radical grace and his radical love towards the ones that were the most unlovable. The table was the essence and the flesh of that. But don't get too mad at the Pharisees, right? You were like, the Pharisees are whack. Just kill them all. But here's the deal. Don't get too mad at the Pharisees just yet. Because here's the thing about the Pharisees, right? Is they were the most religious Jews who were trying to keep God's people tethered to righteousness and holiness, right? Obviously, by taking it too far because they kind of thought, well, everybody should have these holiness standards of purity like priests, right? So they held these impossible standards and expected everyone to need to live into them. But part of it is, part of why they were so perplexed by Jesus is because God's people were occupied by Rome. They were being ruled by the Romans. And they were so perplexed because they're like, uh, so Yahweh, uh, where are these covenant promises that you're supposed to deliver on that we would be like in charge of stuff? Like God, where are you at? We're over here being occupied by Rome. Like what's, what's going on here? Right, so they're thinking, if we just make everybody really holy and really righteous, maybe God will deliver on this covenant promise, right? So the Pharisees are waiting for this Messiah who would come and overthrow Rome and he would establish the kingdom of God. They're waiting for a Messiah that would be given authority over all the nations. So they're thinking, all right, the Messiah is coming, and he's coming with an army of angels on the clouds of heaven, right, with the glory, his glory ablaze with militaristic power because he's got to overthrow Rome, right? He's going to fix this unrighteous occupation of God's people, right? The Pharisees, this is what they're like, where is this Messiah at? We are ready for him. We are ready for him to come, right? He's like, he's going to vindicate, vindicate his righteous people. He's going to defeat all of God's enemies. He's about to set it off on y'all, right? This is what the Pharisees were waiting for. They're like, this Messiah is coming. He's about to wipe the face of the earth with all of you guys. But the Pharisees were shook when Jesus came because Jesus did not come that way. Jesus did not come with militaristic power and might to wipe the face of the Romans, right? To wipe the Romans from the face of the earth. Instead, right, here's what Luke 37, 34 says, the son of man came eating and drinking. The son of man, it says, they literally said, the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The son of man came eating and drinking so much that his enemies accused him of drinking too much and eating too much. They, they got to this point, I can just imagine it, where they're like, okay, enough with the dang meals, Jesus. Like, come, let's do some real work. Like, do you see all this? Let's, let's get the real work done. Enough with the meals around the table. You can picture it, right? You can picture what the Pharisees were waiting for, what they thought the Messiah would look like. And he's like, Matthew, come chill at my table with me, right? The power of the table is that when you share it with sinners, when you share it with those who feel like they are so far from God, when you share it with people who you're like, I think you're kind of crazy and I don't know if I like you, they encounter the radical grace and love offered to them over and over again, offered to me and you over and over again in the person of Jesus. Secondly, what do we encounter at God's table? We encounter repentance and justice at the table. Right, so Jesus entered Jericho as he's passing through. You know, Jesus stayed passing through a bunch of cities and a man there named Zacchaeus, another tax collector, another super hated dude in the community, right? And Zacchaeus is like, I'm short. I need to climb up this tree so I can see Jesus. I can't relate. I'm 6'2". I'm always in the back. I always can see over everyone's head. But Zacchaeus was the opposite. So he's like, I got to climb this tree. And then Jesus, right, he spots him and he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming to your house today. 
I'm coming to your house today. And so Zacchaeus came down and he, and he welcomed him gladly. And so Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And then here we go again. The mutters began. The mutters began again. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner, right? The, the whispers started, right? And it says, Zacchaeus, he welcomed Jesus gladly. But from this table where Jesus has gone to be a guest of the most hated dude, Zacchaeus encounters the living God. And he gives everything, he gives half of everything he owns to the poor, and he pays back everything he's ever cheated anybody out of four times. I'm like, yo, can I get repaid four times for some of the pain I have felt, right? But Zacchaeus, the power of the table, the table that Jesus set before him and invited himself into, it brought salvation, repentance, right? Jesus says to Jesus says at the end of this passage, today salvation has come to this house, right? There was repentance at the table and there was equitable justice, right? Where Zacchaeus paid back everything he had, just, he had stolen and he redistributed his wealth to the poor. There was beautiful repentance turning to Jesus and then justice from this table. And then lastly, we encounter healing and we encounter restoration at God's table. Healing and restoration. So you guys know this story of the sinful woman. Jesus gets invited to another Pharisee's house. Simon the Pharisee invites him for dinner. And a woman who was labeled, she had Linda, lived a sinful life, finds out that Jesus is there and she takes an alabaster jar of perfume and she shows up to the table. And you know the Pharisees are sitting there like, oh, heck no. Nah. Who this, this, who this, this fast girl coming up in here to this dinner, right? You know the Pharisees are sitting back like, oh no, she is. This is not a table for her, right? You know the inside, they're like, what's going on? But she walks straight up to Jesus at the dinner table and she starts crying and she starts wetting his feet with her tears, tears that have been built up over many years of her reputation, right, just being trashed. And she starts wiping his feet and cleaning them with her hair. And then she takes this oil, right, and this is some expensive oil. I used to do essential oils, and what's that oil? That really expensive oil, like I'm like, oh, that it's a really holy oil. But I'm like, anyway, it was expensive, and I was like, I'm not dumping that oil out on somebody's feet. I spent like $120 on it, right? And this probably costs a little more than that, but they, she's taking this oil and she pours it on his feet. She anoints Jesus with this oil. And then Simon the Pharisee, right, he thinks to himself, this dude is not the Messiah. <laughs> this dude is not the Son of Man. Because if he was the Son of Man, he would know who she was. And if he really knew who she was, he would not let her touch him with a 10-foot pole. Right, this is what Simon the Pharisee is thinking. And then Jesus, he says, Simon, I got something for you. I got something for you. And then he tells stories. He says, two, two people owed a moneylender money. Someone owed him $50, someone owed him 500. Neither of them could repay it. So he forgave both of their debts. Which one will love him more? And then he's like, the one who owed the bigger debt. And then Jesus turns and says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I enter has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst them, who is this dude that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman whose reputation has been ruined was publicly restored. 
in front of a bunch of Pharisees, in front of the ones who would look down on her the most and make her feel the most unworthy, Jesus restored her in front of all of them. Right? And when you have this kind of encounter, you have these types of encounters with radical restoration, forgiveness. Oh, that's so healing. It's so healing to be restored like that. There's so, when you are reminded of who you really are, that you're forgiven and you're loved, not because of what you did or how you messed up, they're so healing. When I was reading this passage, you know, you, I was reading it over and over again just to let it sink in. And what kept coming to mind for me was in college, um, you know, I got involved with the ministry I was working for. It's called Athletes in Action. And so I was a student leader in this, like, athlete ministry group. Um, but I was living a double life. I was a hot mess. I was going to leadership meetings and then going out being ratchet, right? I was... I was being a hot mess, guys. I was living a complete double life. I was secretly, internally, I was so torn up about it, but I was hiding it from everyone, right? Because I felt so much shame, and I also, but I also felt trapped. Like, I just could not get any victory over my flesh, right? I, I just felt trapped. I was, there was so much shame. And there was this senior water polo player named Nicolette, and, um, Y'all, so I was a basketball player, and just so you know, I didn't kick it with water polo girls, okay? That sounds stupid. Again, remember, we make tables of exclusion. Basketball players do too. And I was like, oh, no, no, I don't hang out with the water sports, so I don't want to hang out with Nicolette, okay? But Nicolette, Nicolette invited me to her apartment for dinner, one-on-one. -on -one. And I was like, why does this water polo girl want to hang out with me? What's going on? And I went over to Nicolette's house, and she made a home-cooked meal in this grungy apartment in Westwood. And she loved on me, and she laughed with me, and she asked me questions, and she listened to me. And she helped me to trust her in a way that I was like, no, no, no. And I began to, to engage with her. And then I started to confess my sin to her, and I was transparent and I shared my shame and my tears with her, right? And she just lovingly restored me. She laid her hand on my back and I am not a physical touch person, so I was like, stop touching me. But she just did like a little, you know, one of these. Not like a, uh, but just a here, you know, right here. And I felt lovingly seen and restored and she prayed for me, and she told me, we're all that messy. <laughs> you're just sharing yours with me, and you're still loved, and you're still worthy, and you're still a leader, and we want to restore you and help you walk in the ways of Jesus. Y'all, I was like, what is going on, this water polo player? Like, right, I was, I was shook to my core because it was just this one small meal in a small, dumpy apartment in Westwood, but it was this significant moment for me in college that quite possibly changed the trajectory of my future and how I was choosing to live in the world. The table is powerful. <laughs> the table is powerful. So we looked at, right, just these three movements from Jesus's table, and then quickly as I close, Let's look at three missional movements from our own tables. And it's just three words, simplicity, hospitality, and opportunity. And here's what I mean. When I say simplicity, right, when we think about our own tables, we think about mission and sometimes we're like, God's mission, yes, the Missio Day, this is so big, let's go. And we make it more complicated when Jesus actually modeled simplicity. Right? So I think sometimes we think, I got to start a big thing. I got to start big things. I got to start a nonprofit. Or I got to start a ministry at my church or a task force. And I got to invite the best, smartest, most educated, and most influential people in the city to make the biggest difference. Right? And if you're called to do any of those things, those are awesome. I'm not saying those are bad. Those are 
awesome. But I think the reality is most of us aren't called to these huge, big starting things. But, but we, I even, I was guilty of this, right? We're reading in seminary. We're like reading all our seminary books and we read books on mission about like contextualization, evangelism, metrics, metrics, colonization, cross-cultural hermeneutics, right? All these things is like blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying these things are not important and we should, not, and we should think about them, but I'm saying Jesus's missional strategy was quality time with food and drinks around a table. It is simple. It is more simple than we think, right? If, if we remember, right, the table was this portal to the kingdom of God. So is it possible that perhaps one of the most significant ways we participate with the Holy Spirit in God's mission regularly begins in our living room, in our kitchens, in our dining rooms. Maybe the missional metric we should regularly be examining is who is invited to dinner? Who is invited to our Thanksgiving meal in four days? Who do I invite into my home or who do I invite to walk with me at the park? And whose table am I willing to sit at and share a meal with? Maybe these are actually the ministry metrics that we should be thinking about more, right? That we don't underestimate the power of a coffee date or of a dinner, brunch, lunch, happy hour date, right? That we would use our tables to move towards the broken, the vulnerable, the least, last, lost out, left behind, those pushed to the margins, that we would make our tables places of welcome for them. Maybe that's the best missional strategy we got in our pocket and in our tool belt, right? And then the second one is hospitality, right? This missional movements from our tables. And I think um, when I think of hospitality, sometimes I think, well, I'm gonna make my house real cute with this wall wallpaper up. I'm gonna get some feng shui in here, like a nice homey couch. Like the Vukoviches used to have this like, busted recliner brown chair that was like halfway broken, but it was, you know how there's those chairs that are so broken they're comfortable? That's what that chair was, right? This, this, I, when I think of hospitality, I'm like, I gotta upset the good vibes. I gotta make this place a place where people wanna hang out. You know, I gotta have some plants hanging from the ceiling and the sunlight, sunlight hits it just right. right this is what we think of when we think of hospitality but actually biblical hospitality that we saw Jesus doing, it was about welcoming the stranger and your neighbors and yes, even your enemies to the table with you. Hospitality was about, I open my, my table is a table of welcome for the people that I don't agree with. I don't believe the same things they believe. They got that scary flag in their front yard. I don't wanna have them over, right? But the hospitality is, my table is a table of welcome for them. The people who have contrarian views from my own are welcome at my table. And this is the radical biblical hospitality that Jesus modeled, right? Jesus, he could have just canceled Zacchaeus or Matthew or Simon the Pharisee and been like, y'all have trash theology, I am done with you. Right? This is what Jesus could have done, but instead he sought proximity with them, proximity with them by inviting them into the intimacy around the table sharing meals. Right? We want to seek proximity with our neighbors who believe, think, and live differently than us. And this is way easier said than done. Right, because this means, like I said, the neighbors with the scary flags in their house, right, we're invi they're invited to the table, right? But here's the thing, the power of the table doesn't happen without the power of the ear. And you're like, the power of the ear? The power of the ear, right? Sitting with people and listening to their stories, who they are, what they fundamentally believe and why they ended up fundamentally believing it, right? The power of the ear, this ear, the power of the ear, this is mission, 
right? This is mission. We want to cultivate genuine curiosity, right? Genuine, that I want to be genuinely curious about people, about my neighbors. I want to create at my table, right, hospitality, a beloved community, right? A, a community where you don't have to believe first to belong. You don't have to believe first to belong. You can come to this table and not agree and not believe, and you can still belong at my table of welcome. And then the last one, opportunities. And this word, I think it's because we saw Jesus, right? Jesus wasn't just like, yeah, let's go to happy hour and chill and like, you know, talk about the movie that just came out. Although I do want to talk about Black Panther Wakanda Forever because I cried through the whole thing. And so I'm like, I do want someone to just process my feelings with me through the movie. So there's that. But, right, Jesus, he wasn't just talking about, you know, shallow, normal. He, he did do some of that, right? But he, 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 it was deeper than that. Y'all, Jesus' conversations, when we read the New Testament and I read the stuff he was saying to people, I'm like, Jesus' conversations were always addressing things like, Sin, forgiveness, right? One spiritual life, like status. He, Jesus was always addressing hard stuff, right? He was always addressing hard stuff. The Pharisees were always asking him complicated questions and he stayed telling somebody's story and parable and addressing hard stuff. So when I think about this, like with opportunities around our table, how do we make our table a place of connection, of blessing and of brokenness, right? Where we can hold people's brokenness, where we can speak blessing over people, right? Where it's a table of deep connection, of genuine curiosity, right? I was just talking about this with a group of friends this Friday night because um, I was, I was I, you know, I'm single um, and ready to mingle, so, um, <laughs> but a group of friends, I was saying, you know, married people, I think one of the things married people forget sometimes is like, you have way more opportunities in space. Even if you're really busy, you can go home and you share a bed with your spouse. So there's space to create emotional intimacy, physical intimacy. Like this is a part of a healthy marriage, right? Singles, we have to learn to create intimacy in our friendships because we, we, we don't have spouses to have that type of intimacy with. And so I was just saying, when I, I started paying attention to this, I was like, when I'm not creating space in my life to cultivate deep friendships, whether it's a phone call with one of my friends across the country, or it's just a dinner with one of my girls where we eat together and talk about like, man, this thing popped up and it was hard, right? Our feelings, like if I'm not cultivating intimacy and depth in my friendships, I'm headed for loneliness, and loneliness starts to sink in for me and starts to make me feel isolated. And so I'm like, as a single, this, this, this act of creating opportunities for deep connection, I'm like, Phew. how can even you as families or married people invite singles to your table for genuine connection and create opportunities for intimacy for singles who won't get it in other relationships? Right, how do we create opportunities like this at our table? We need to curate opportunities at our tables for people to find this genuine connection, for uh, this feeling of being known, right? Be this being knownness and asking questions, not just to be known, but even to teach people how to know others, right? How do we create tables that are resilient spaces to talk about sin and forgiveness and to confess and repent? How do we create that type of an environment at our table? We need these kind of opportunities, tables. We need this discipline, this spiritual discipline of table fellowship. How are we gonna see every person in the city of Long Beach encounter the radical love and grace of Jesus? It's gonna happen by casting tables of welcome all around this city by creating tables of welcome in your neighborhood, on your street, and inviting people in to this place where they can encounter the grace and love of Jesus.
That's how we reach Long Beach. We cast tables across the city. And it's appropriate now that as we talk about the power of the table, this missional movement modeled from Jesus' life of the table, that we take toward the table that Christ sets before us, right? That he, uh, like he did with his disciples over 2,000 years ago at the communion table, where he invited his disciples in and he shared about his broken body and they broke bread together and he shared about his blood that would be spilled for them and they shared wine together and it was this table that Christ continually invites us into, right? A, a rhythm, a rhythm of our lives uh, that we enter in to, to the table of communion, right? It's this uh, ceremony of renewing our covenant with our covenant-keeping God. And so uh, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna have someone come up and invite you to this table, the table of communion where we share in the body and the blood of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you give us your vision for the table? Would you give us your powerful vision for the t a table of welcome that invites people to experience your radical love and grace? A table that from it comes repentance and reconciliation and justice. That from your table, Lord, comes <clears throat> restoration and healing. God, would you help us to be a people who cast tables across Long Beach and set a space at the table where people can come and be loved and belong. That they don't have to believe first, but they can just belong and experience deep connection and cultivate curiosity. Jesus, you are good, and we love you, and we ask you to rain down your glory on the city of Long Beach. We ask this in your mighty, mighty name. Amen.